most of my early podcasts have focused on delivery of projects and the mechanics of how projects actually operate. And what I want to do in today's podcast is maybe focus on the front end and show you how partners go about selling projects or go about developing relationships with clients. And I think the key thing you want to note in this podcast is a number of the myths I'm going to cover and actually disprove. If you speak to junior people from McKinsey and BCG and so on, they make it sound as if partners only deal with the most senior levels of the organization, you know, as if the CEO picks up his phone and calls in a McKinsey and BCG partner or the chairman of the board and so on. Yes, that that is true. That is how it happens in the sense that that is how the majority of relationships takes place after they've been developed. But the reality is that that myth is carefully crafted by consulting firms. There are many times when middle managers call it, pick up the phone and decide to call us, or when we have to go to a request for a proposal. Um, if you're dealing with a public entity, such as a utility and so on, or even a state-owned enterprise, or even a federal agency, you have to go to a tender because the uh, rules in the government procurement process says that you have to go to tender. So uh, consulting firms like McKinsey and BCG who tell you that they never bid for work, that's actually untrue. Uh, they do bid for work, especially when you look at... Um, um, large state-owned enterprises and government contracts. In fact, if you go onto the BCG website, if you look carefully enough, you'll find a page whereby you can actually submit a tender and BCG will consider whether or not they want to respond to it. It's not that these firms respond to tenders, but for certain clients and certain very large, prestigious clients, you have no choice. If you're doing work for the largest um, utility in Russia, South Africa, Brazil, and so on, you have no choice but to respond to a tender. And there's a whole process that sits behind it. But I'm not going to talk about that today. Today I want to talk about one of my early, early opportunities to develop a relationship with a client when I just become a principal. Um, and I want to talk you through how this worked. And what you'll notice is that while the the start of the story looks as a, like a typical project you may get at any you know second tier firm and so on the way we develop this will show you the way the top tier consulting firms can take a, a fairly pedestrian opportunity and use it to develop an outstanding relationship with the client and you and you notice that when you, when you listen to me I never use the word that we're selling work because that's kind of a crass way of saying it we always talk about developing a relationship selling work is just a horrible way to describe a client relationship so the, the story I'm going to talk about here relates to when I had just made principal, it was very early days, and I was sitting in my office, if I remember correctly, and a call came in, I think the call came in either directly through me or just put through by my assistant, and this guy who doesn't speak English very well um, wanted to speak to someone at, at the firm to discuss a challenge he had in his company and you know I took the call polite thing to do obviously since the client a potential client had come through this guy was a middle manager he was not senior by any levels he was a manager in the strategy department of a, one of the world's largest companies sorry one of the largest companies in Latin America a monster by any measure and they, they were doing some internal work and he had some questions around how his company can reorganize itself to be successful. So we're talking, and the guy's English is bad. I don't speak Spanish, so uh, I don't understand Spanish. So he was speaking in halting English, and he wasn't very eloquent in putting forward what he wanted to say. So it took a long time, and the call lasted something like 45, 48 minutes for me to really understand what he was saying. And every time he'd say something, I'd say, okay, so I understand you mean this. And they'll say, no, 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 you know, I, I'm trying to say this. And then it 
took us a long time, but eventually I understood what he was saying. And bottom line of what he was saying is that, and he, and he wasn't saying it as eloquently as I'm going to say it now, is the bottom line is that over time the culture of the organization had eroded to the point whereby the company was not as productive as it used to be. Powerful labor unions had taken control of the organization, and the company was about to embark on a massive growth strategy. And the, and the question he had been asked by the um, um, executive team to answer was, are there any examples of companies, large companies, with entrenched labor unions that have found a way to change their culture and become more competitive over time? And he said that he had spoken to other companies. I'm not going to mention them, but they're your typical second-tier companies. And two of them had come back to him and wanted to sell him a value model. Basically, a value model is an economic model that um, if your target is return on invested capital, it will work out the target you want to generate, and it will then cascade it, break it down into different steps until, you know, in one plant, the, the foreman may, may uh, know that he needs to produce 1,000 units of a product if the company is to meet its ROIC target for a week. So he has to produce 1,000 pieces of a product per day. But that's what a, basically a value driver treat as a value model. And he says that he looked at it, he didn't want a financial model because this wasn't answering the question he, he had. So I said, okay, there's no problem. Why don't we do this, right? Um, let me think about it. I've listened to what you said. Um, obviously, you 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 agree that my understanding is correct. So I'm going to think about this and why don't we speak in three or four days' time. So. He was a middle manager, and you know, in most cases, we would not have followed up. But I thought, look, you know, it doesn't hurt to give someone respect. The guy, you know, his English is not good. He was obviously putting himself out there. He was obviously keen about this. And at the very least, we'll build an ally in the company. So let's just speak to him. You know, nothing will, maybe nothing will come out of this. So anyway, I, I'm, this is my area of expertise, you know, these massive organizational changes, this large, broad corporate strategy changes. But, but not just the, the, the corporate strategy side of it, which is, tends to be very quant heavy, but really how you reorganize an organization for success. I, was, I tended to be quite good at those things. So I spent some time thinking about it. I put together a few slides. It took me about three hours to do it. Three hours out of my time over three days for the principal with the kind of time pressure I have is quite significant. But I thought, look, you know what? I'm in South America for the next few months. The firm is making a big push in here. So it doesn't hurt to build an ally. You know, you don't know where, where this guy's connections would end up. So I sent him the slides, not expecting anything back on it. And then he called me back in about 12 and I said, look, I really like the slides you sent me. Uh, I just have a few questions. So I, we spent about an hour discussing the questions that he had, and I really wanted to explain to him the challenges he would face. And, and the discussion we had is not about strategy and finance and so on. It's really about how do you take an organism, an, an organization that had been successful for 100 years, and it becomes so successful that people could that the that the the, the media, the employees, uh, even senior management did not realize they were doing badly. They were living off the glory of the past, and he could see this. I mean, quite a talented guy. He was 35 years old. I mean, a manager basically in the internal strategy team, but he felt that the organization needed to do something dramatic to change. He, he said that, you know, a couple of people see it, but most people don't. And he's not even, and actually in the, in the second call, he told me he's not even authorized to do this research. I mean, he's doing it by himself because he thinks it's worthwhile to do some research. So I said, fine, no problem. I understand that, you know, I'm happy to talk to you, use whatever we've given you. And I've given some links to other material we had put out. And I just said, you know, the point is what you're going through is not unusual. A lot of companies go through it. And I think if you really want to understand the challenge of 
state-owned enterprises that have dominated their sector, darlings of the um, industrial sector, in the sense that they contribute something like 5-8% of the GDP of a national economy. It, it, there's a lot at stake when you try to re-energize these businesses because the government doesn't want to do it. You know, If you try to increase productivity, you may have to retrench um, employees, which is obviously going to hurt in an election year. If you um, if the if the change that is implemented fails, you're obviously going to hurt the coffers because this is one of the largest taxpayers in the national economy. So we spoke through these things, and he said, "Look, I really like what you're saying. Can I think about it? I may have more questions." I said, "No problem." So he calls me back in about. I can't remember the exact date, it was a long time ago, but it, it, I think it was two or three days later, I remember very clearly, it was a Friday, that much I remember, and I was leaving the office, and he calls me back and says, look, I, I took a lot of notes when I was speaking to you, and I went to see uh, one of the um, senior vice presidents, who knows one of the board members, and we went to see him and explained what you had told us. Um, they liked what you said, so they want you to come in to present to us. And that's what he said, exact words. He, he wants you to come in to present to us, right? Uh, about your thoughts, because we thought it was very interesting. We haven't heard anything like this. I said, look, there's no problem. I'm happy to do it. Uh, do you mind just giving me some of the details? He gave me some of the details. He says, it's just a small pe group that I want you to present to. Um, and I want you to present to one of the executive directors. And I said, okay, no problem. I took down the name. I didn't know this client that well. So the name did not ring a bell with me when he mentioned who it was. And he said, it's just going to be a small group, right? So he did end up by saying, look, you know, it's an executive director, so I'm going out on a limb here by bringing you in. Don't let me down. Um, so I could understand what, what he was going through. So I went off to see one of the senior partners in this sector just to run by the organizer, the client and, you know, to run the names by him. And he pointed out to me, look, the, the three people that he mentioned attending are on the board of directors. So that's quite a powerful audience you have. And, um, you know, we were quite impressed that, a call with a middle manager had led up to a uh, board member discussion. And the reason why it impressed us is because we know our biggest competitor was doing a whole lot of strategy work up until I think, as far as we know, they were still doing strategy work at this company, or maybe they're just finished. But the point is, we didn't expect to be called in at the board level of this client because we knew our biggest competitor was there. But moreover, if you think about how this discussion started with a middle manager, but the way we pitched it, the the level at which we carried the conversation made him very quickly realize that, you know what, these guys need to speak to the board, to some of the board members. I think that's one of the differences between one of the leading firms and the other firms. You know, firms like Deloitte and Accenture will always tell you they work with the executive, you know, they work at the top, but they don't. And secondly, even if they did in certain cases work at the top, they don't have a culture of doing it. And most importantly, when they engage middle management, middle management feels comfortable engaging Deloitte and Accenture. And I think that's the difference between BCG, McKinsey, Bain, and so on. I mean, I engage this guy middle manager and he it was very quickly apparent to him that look you know what i'm talking to this principal and and clearly he's operating at a level above where i have a jurisdiction to to act on and i need to get him in touch with with at least a senior person as i can and in this particular case we had no relationships with this client uh, we were in fact, you know, while it was um, on the cards that we would try to build some relationships here, we didn't expect it would happen so quickly. So I said, no problem. I'll come in. I asked two of the senior partners to join me because I didn't have the depth in the sector, although I had the functional knowledge. So I put together a really, I think, a very good presentation. It took me about... I think about two weeks to prepare it, about 15 slides, there, 15, maybe 20 slides, I can't remember the actual number. So we arrived there, and I was a young principal at this point, you know, 
arrived there with my Hermes tie, my, my French cufflinks, my French cut suit and my polished shoes and so on. And the two senior partners coming also well, you know, dressed. Um, and we arrive there and we, we, we get put into this little boardroom and then this um, manager we haven't seen until this point comes in and he says, you know, uh, um, thank you for coming through. I really appreciate it. I'm, you know, are you ready for the presentation? And I said, yes. And then um, he said, how do you feel? And I said, that I'm, I'm, hap I'm quite confident that we'll do a, a pretty good job. And he says, I hope so. But he didn't mean it in a negative way. You know, you could see his career was on the line because he basically called, he used whatever credit he had with his direct boss. He had used that to get in three, three board members were attending this presentation. Three board members out of a 12 member board. Now that's quite a lot of um, influence and there's quite a good audience that we're getting. So two of the senior partners that came in, um, they didn't know the three board members, but they knew people who knew the board members. So they quickly built some kind of report, but there was also clearly some some um, of a, of a, they were, the point is they didn't know us very well. At this point, the firm didn't have a big presence in this country, so they they knew of us obviously at the firm, but they didn't know anyone personally. So there's some apprehension, and they're basically being called into this meeting on the backing of a of a manager, a middle manager who had spoken to us, who had convinced the senior vice president that we were worth talking. So. So all these people come in, and when you said it's a small group, it didn't turn out to be a small group. That I can assure you, 18 people walked into that room, of which there were three board members, there were a couple of exco members in that meeting, and there were a couple of senior managers, and also he brought in his old his entire department of strategy people, which were six people. So we had we had eight people at different levels of seniority. We had the most senior board member, the uh, board board level members. We had a couple of of exco members, you know, who work with the CEO. The CEO did not attend; he wasn't available. I'll explain to you what happened afterwards. And then we have the six uh, junior people who are obviously there with all their notepads and their yellow you know, pens and so on, ready to take as much notes as possible to analyze how to, an to understand how to analyze this problem. So the, the, the most senior board member who arrived was the chairman of the board. I only realized that later. There were some internal changes made. So while we're in the discussion, um, they decided to introduce themselves. So, you know, I led the discussions on behalf of the firm, even though there were two senior partners that I introduced ourselves. They introduced themselves and they mentioned that, you know, there's been a change recently, which you'll see in the paper. I'm taking over as chairman. The announcement went out while we were in this meeting. So, you know, I'm very interested to see what you guys have to show. But they didn't speak a lot, you know. And there were a couple of reasons why they didn't speak a lot. They didn't speak a lot because they couldn't speak English very well. The, the board members could, but it was halting English. And one of the things we were debating when we went into this meeting is, you know, should I do the presentation or should one of the senior partners? The senior partners were based in Latin America, so those they spoke Spanish, but they said, look, you do the presentation, it's okay. So, the tactic I went for here to do my presentation was to speak very slowly. I made a special point of standing up when I wanted to emphasize a point in the presentation. I put my hand onto the part of the presentation so they could connect my verbal cue to the part of the presentation. And that's the approach I use. So, you know, what was meant to be a 30-minute presentation ended up being something like an hour-long presentation. And they just stopped me at points and so on. So, very interesting. So, we started this presentation and I really enjoyed it. You know, I really liked discussing things with clients and so on. And and the client asked me, the, the most senior, the, the chairman of the board did ask me, or chairman designate, I suppose you could say. He did ask me, you know, do you have a background on this company? So, I said, yes, I do have a background. I would appreciate any additional information you could provide. So he gave me a background, which more or less squared with what we already knew. But one thing he did point out is that, um, in addition to what I've already told you about this company, is that their, the way they knew their productivity was dropping is because their operating costs had been increasing 
quite steadily over the last 22 years. Operating costs have been going up, but the private sector companies operating in the same sector in the same part of the country had half of the operating costs. So, so the issue here was that operating costs were going up. The labor unions were becoming really, really difficult to manage. They were demanding more and more things. This guy, who was the chairman of the board, made it very clear that he does not have the backing of the bulk of the board or the bulk of Exco to support his thinking. Most of the organization thinks things are fine. And he made it very clear that the reason he wanted to speak to me was to understand the problem even more, to help him make his point. So that was a fantastic, I think, start to the presentation. And I stood up and, you know, I was obviously nervous, you know. You know no matter what level you're at, there's always people more powerful. There's always people that, there's, a, there's just a lot at stake here. I mean, uh, I was more concerned about the manager who looked really terrified, you know, sitting in there. He didn't even look like he fitted in with all these, you know, powerful people with their, you know, the board members came in and they were well dressed, you know, suits, ties, the works. So um, I started my presentation and basically I took a really big gamble here. Basically, I decided to show them companies outside their sector. A very, very big gamble. I decided to show them companies outside their sector and, th and I basically did a case study on companies. One was a client we had handled and another one was not a client. In fact, a really big gamble because it was our competitor's biggest client. Uh, and what, but the way I pitched the story was that this was an example, a true example, of a, of a organizational reshuffling that had not worked. And the other example was a very successful project we ran where we came into this company that was had a gung-ho cowboy culture, which had helped them over the you know many years. But how that culture had actually caused risk protocols and risk mitigation steps that should have been placed to have been overridden. And the story went something like this. The presentation was actually one of my better presentations. I think it was simple, to the point, you know, graphically appealing, but graphically simple, you know. I hate presentations with a lot of details. So anyway, it was a very simple presentation. And basically I pointed out to them that, you know, I give them just a, a day in the life of an organization going through these changes. And I pointed, and my, my objective was not to tell them obvious things. I wanted to dig behind the scenes to talk to them about things they would never have known about. So one of the big parts of my uh, presentation, which for a corporate strategy presentation is very unusual, is I didn't focus on the market analysis, I didn't focus on the competitors. In fact, hell, I didn't even talk about the competitors. I never talked about the competitors even once. I never spoke about the price of the commodity. I never spoke about, you know, legislation and so on. I spoke about the organizational dynamics and the what I call the the the, the power struggle within these organizations. And I case studied a few companies and one organization I pointed out is how the CEO CEO had come in, just like this chairman. Over time he had built the case for change, but he didn't understand how important it is to get his organizational executive leadership to fall into line and support what he was doing. So a classic example of what he was doing is that in this particular client, in this particular case that I spoke about, it happened to be a resources company, a large oil and gas company, and also state-owned. And the, the national minister brought in a new CEO. But the way the organizational um, a memorandum was structured. The three presidents of the company did not formally report into the CEO, as bizarre as that sounds. Right? They didn't report into the CEO, they directly reported into the minister. So the CEO said, look, we can't actually have this. You know, and I'll give you an example of why we can't actually have this, because I called a meeting with, this, with the presidents, no one showed up. So the minister said, okay, let's change the articles of incorporation and let's make them report to you. Two of those uh, um, executive, uh, um, sorry, 
presidents resigned, one stayed behind. So the CEO, now when he has more power over the organization, decided to slowly implement the changes he wanted. He did a couple of things first. Rather than rolling out the change across the entire organization, he picked one of the most important uh, divisions and he rolled out the change there only. And only when he knew it worked, he, he basically put it up on a pedestal and said, this is what we can do if we're willing to make sacrifices. But he made a mistake when he rolled out the entire change. What he did is that he left control of processes that he considered unimportant in the hands of the executives he thought he had sidelined and would replace in time. One of those executives he thought he would sideline and replace in time was the HR ex um, executive vice president and the other one was the chief information officer. But they ended up sabotaging his, his efforts because what would happen is that while the CEO would stand up and say, hey, you know what, we're now going to reward the right reward the right kind of behaviors, the HR, would, the HR executive vice president who did not support the changes basically refused to implement this to the performance review. So what you'd have is a CEO saying something different, but employees were not incentivized to change. Moreover, the CEO, also, the CIO also did not support the changes. So what he did is that he controlled the data in the organization. He decided who got the right data and who didn't get the right data. And basically what happened is that people who were in line with the CEO got data incorrectly or not even get data at all which basically you know screwed up the operations and people who supported no change got the right data so we had this long wide-ranging discussion about you know how you organize how do you how do you change the DNA of an organization and we came to the conclusion and this is the other thing I did which is dangerous is I said I have an hypothesis that you cannot change the culture of the organization that's my hypothesis, which is a risky maneuver because as a, as a consulting firm, which is, you know, consulting firms will, will tell a client whatever they want to hear. I took a gamble, and I'll be honest, I, do ta I did take a lot of gambles in my career, but calculated gambles, and, and, the, and the, the chairman stood, sat forward, you know, wrapped his arms and said, why would you say that? I said, well, let's look at the facts, right? The mere fact that we're having this meeting here and you've only got three of your board members and not all nine, and not the other nine, tells me that you don't have a lot of support to do this. It's... I know you've been having this, this discussion about changing the culture of the organization since 1991, right? It's over 10 years later. Not, not a lot has happened. And I'm not, it's no one's fault. It's difficult to do this, right? It's not easy at all. You know, I'm glad that you know, the new chairman is supporting this, but it's still not going to be easy. So what I think you should do is that I know you have two new developments taking place. And I know that the way you're designing those developments, those new, those new facilities, is there are subdivisions of larger facilities. But the problem you have there is that the larger facilities are going to basically parachute in their poor practices into this new division. So whatever chance you have of reinventing the organization is going to die because the larger organizations who have entrenched policies and entrenched cultures don't want any change. And they'll basically sabotage anything you want to do. Which is a risky move. I mean, I didn't actually look at the senior partners, but I'm pretty sure they looked at each other. Maybe one of them gulped. But the point is, I explained my rationale. I said that, look, you're, going, you're embarking on one, of the, on one of the largest oil and gas developments in the world. Easily one of the largest. Why don't you divisionalize the new project and make it a new division? Staff it in with new people and run it in the new way you want it. And if it works, you then use it as an opportunity to change the rest of the organization, which we only learned later was the opposite of what um, our competitors had told them they should do. Now, we had a long discussion about why I thought this was the case, and they basically peppered me with a lot of questions. And I didn't have the answers to everything, but I was quite comfortable. I said, look, I don't have the answers to everything. Your culture is different. I must be honest, you know, the culture of this country is very hierarchical, and, and you actually know that. There's nothing wrong with it. You know, every country has its own quirks. I mean, you know, 
I'm from, you know, I'm living in Canada, so you know, uh, we have our own way of doing things. People say it's slow in some cases because we follow the permitting in every single respect, but it works for us. You know, you have your own way of doing things. Other people will say it doesn't work for you, but it works for you. So the point is, it's not about what's right and wrong. I think if you get into that debate, you're going to fail, because in a certain context everything's right and in another context everything's wrong what i think you you do need to do is you need to ring fence this new entity and implement or inject the new measures you want to to implement you know, pre prevent the unions from from or prevent the wrong unions was the right as the word i use from building a bulk that prevents you from implementing change you've got to cut costs bring in more contractors i mean we basically went through a whole dialogue then about how you manage capital projects you know how do you manage contractors you know they wanted to know okay if we bring in more contractors how do you manage you know quality and I said well think about it most large projects in the world are not managed with internal you know a, a build and um, epcm um capabilities most large projects have contractors like in you know, a baker wheeler halliburton and so on so it can be done and i think you're actually diluting your capital by spending all your time building up these capabilities so you know it was a very frank discussion and they liked it and i remember the um the senior vice president the boss of the manager came up to me afterwards and said look you did a very good presentation uh, i've never seen them take so much notes in a presentation you know they were listening they really liked what you said and they walked us out which was a very, very good sign. And, you know, the next day I got a call saying, you know what, uh, they'd like to meet us again for coffee because they're about to fly up. So, you know, they definitely want to speak to us, uh, but they don't have time to have a full meeting, so they want to meet us over coffee. So, I like coffee. I'm more of a hot chocolate fan, so we we arrive in uh, we met in Santiago, uh, you know, um, El Bosque. I don't know if you know El Bosque Street, where the it's it's where the largest or the tallest building in Santiago is being built. Um, it's um, next to, it's on the street. Uh, it's, what's it called? Uh, it's, I know it's opposite a Starbucks. Basically, it's it's next to a Starbucks. And there's a couple of famous restaurants there. I can't remember the names of those restaurants. Um, but all I know is it's the new, the tallest new building in Santiago is going up there. So we, we had a discussion. Bef this was before the construction began, next to a Starbucks, and you know the chairman came through and he said, "Look, I really liked your presentation. Uh, I thought what you were doing makes a lot of sense, uh, but I don't think the company is ready for this. But what I think the company is ready for is for someone to help us think through how we should go about divisionalizing our business. You know, out of that project, we won the mandate to to divisionalize." The new operation. Basically, it was, a new, it was an organizational design project. That's how it was sold into the organization. That's how they sold it in. They said, this is an organizational design project. How do we organize ourselves to maximize our productivity? Uh, we bring in these firms of, this form of international consultants. They're going to help us think it through. The press release went out. They had to announce it, obviously, state-owned enterprise. And we came in, we did this project. It was a very nice project. I really enjoyed it. I think we, I built a very good um, report with the chairman. And I think that really helped my career because you know, being able to talk to the chairman, having an open dialogue helped a lot. It also was good that I was able to, I would say, enhance the relationship because I think that I did go a little bit off cuff in my presentation and you know, unplanned statements were made, but nothing negative, nothing bad at all. I just wanted to be honest with the client, you know, Tell them exactly what I think. If they're not happy with what I think, it's okay. As long as I'm not flippant. And I think some of two of this, maybe two, maybe one. But I think the senior partners were a little bit concerned that maybe I was too honest with the client. But I said, look, we didn't say anything bad. We we're very honest. If they if they chose to work with us by us underselling the complexity of what we're trying to do, then 
there's no point in us doing the work for them. There's no point in us helping them because we couldn't help them. But if we made this sound even more difficult than it really w would be, and they still wanted to work with us, and at the very least, it would be easier, which would be better for us. So it is a nice project. I really, you know, the engagement was fantastic, right? It was, it was an outstanding engagement. And what was nice about it is that it was just very different from your traditional corporate strategy projects. You know, you go in there, you analyze the market, you want to know where the price, what's the, what's the, what's the curve, the, the cost curve and commodities, you build these marginal cost curves and so on. And I like those projects. I mean, they're very interesting, but I do find that they, they're common. I mean, corporate strategy projects tend to be common. Every firm is doing it. Every firm is trying to do it. Most don't know how to do it. But if you work at a BCG, Bain and McKinsey, you're going to be a lot of you're going to be doing a lot of these of these projects. What I find even more difficult is projects where the the, the key question being asked of you is quite difficult in the sense that how do we organize ourselves to become productive again? How do we go back to to bringing in our to getting our productivity to where it was 15, 20 years ago? I mean, th that's that's a really, really complex thing to do. I mean, how do you structure that analysis? And, you know, it was very difficult for us. You know what we did? We went out and spoke to the biggest competitor because the biggest competitor had been running circles around them. And we wanted to benchmark. So we sh it was a benchmarking exercise, right? But a benchmarking exercise is not the numbers. That's what the mistake most people make. It's understanding why the differences occur. And in some cases, we realized that while this company was more expensive in some cases, there was rational reasons for that, and we didn't want to change it. But basically... What we found is a couple of things. The culture had eroded in the sense that people did not want to acknowledge that they were less competitive. That's the first thing. No matter what numbers are put in front of them, they realized they were less competitive. And we had to actually make them believe that. Secondly, we had to then explain why they were less competitive. Again, it was a difficult discussion. I mean, if you're telling the board that, you know what, the unions are a problem. The unions are a problem because if you look at the strike action, they've taken the packages they're negotiating. They're very different from what the, the, the packages they're negotiating with your competitors. I mean, just because you're a public entity doesn't mean you have an obligation to pay more to the public. At the end of the day, if you mess up, you contribute 5 to 8% of the GDP. And it is going to have a large impact on the economy. So it was those kind of discussions, you know, trying to understand where the root cause. And then once we understood the root cause, you know, how do we then organize this company? You know, the company is organized as a matrix, which was, we thought was a, quite a ridiculous model for a, for a single commodity company to be organized as a matrix. There was no reason for that. It should be organized as a line unit, so we reorganized the company. The other thing we felt is that the company was building in too much capabilities in us. I mean, they have these huge budgets dedicated to research, internal engineering, that we're using once a year. So, you know, we found a way to release a lot of capital obviously lowered the operating costs and their and their development costs by just basically spinning off these businesses some cases selling them other cases we found ways to spin them back into the community so we got you know employees to buy off the businesses and where it made economic sense to sell it back into the business we also pushed this company heavily heavily towards using contractors so that their actual internal build team which was massive by any measure i mean thousands of people we dropped them down to less than a thousand we managed to outsource all of the work but Obviously, we brought in a very strong risk and compliance division to make sure that the management of these external teams were kept in check. We also found, you know, that um, 
you know, Accenture had done a very big project for them to roll out a new um, SAP system. And we did feel that Accenture was getting the short end of the stick. They were being blamed for a lot of things that were not their fault. And we, we, sh we taught the company how to use SAP as a tool to manage the business as, you know, the way they were seeing it as an obstacle. And we felt they were getting poor reporting back from their middle managers in terms of the use of SAP. And I think Accenture had actually done a very good job in that uh, rollout. A very good job, I thought. I mean, fantastic. I mean, it's very rare when you go into a... Um, into an ERP implementation and you see it delivered on time uh, below budget and things work you know you if you want the data you know as you know when you're a consultant you're asking for raw data to to draw your own conclusion I did feel the system could do that um, so you know we had to really show them what really were the problems and at the end of the day you know, when we did make this rollout they did eventually divisionalize the new oil and gas division it was not easy to do. The chairman pushed it through. The chairman eventually replaced a lot of the executive management. A lot of the leadership of the firm went with the chairman. The chairman just changed them. He decided that change was needed. We need to bring in a private sector person to, to change this organization. And I think the new guy that came in was good for the organization. Unfortunately, he didn't have a he didn't have a good relationship or any relationship with the firm with our, with our firm. So he brought in a competing company, but they kept whatever we had done and you know it's good to see those changes put forward but I think I just want to circle back and reiterate some of the important points on this podcast I mean many of my podcasts focus on the project itself but it's interesting to see how the project actually is developed and what's interesting about this particular um, engagement or relationship is that it didn't start at the top by any measure in fact most people who had spoken to this middle manager had probably written him off and said you know what this guy is nobody. He's not going to give us anything. Let's just try to sell him some $100,000, maybe $500,000 uh, economic modeling project. That's all he can probably you know, buy from us. And let's just you know, move on to bigger things. And I think that, that, that the point I'm trying to make is you've got to treat your clients with respect. Anyone you speak to is a client. And when I say client, I don't mean someone who necessarily has a contractual relationship with you. Anyone you speak to outside the firm is a client. You don't know where people will end up. You don't know what their relationships are. Just because someone may be a middle manager doesn't mean he he doesn't have a strong reputation within the organization. I think that's very important. The second point I want to make is that irrespective of the level at which you engage the organization, you always operate at a certain level. So we engage the middle management level, but the way we carried ourselves, the way we approach us, the level of professionalism, the just amount of of selfless time we committed to getting this guy to understand things. The way we, we, we pitched the discussion made it very apparent that we are a firm that operates only at the highest levels of the organization. And I think it's very important to understand. I mean, if you are truly a senior advisor, a, a management consultant, then it doesn't matter to which level of the organization you speak. It will come across that you influence at the highest levels. And then the third point I want to make here is that it's very easy to give a client what they want a year. I mean, we went into that discussion. Maybe the chairman wanted us to tell him that it, this should be a big bang approach. You know, you move in and you fix the entire organization. Or it can be done. I'm pretty sure many consulting organizations would, said it could, would have said it could have been done. And midway through the project, when reality hits in, they'll just blame the client for saying, you know, the client wasn't willing to do what we wanted to do. And I think the key thing is, yeah, is that you want to build a relationship for the long term. And while we may... While we did this project, we did two projects at this company afterwards, and then the CEO changed, and you know we had to 
um, our relation we still do work at that client a lot but I wouldn't call us the preferred company the preferred company is a new consulting firm our relationship with the chairman has remained and he's quite a powerful guy in Latin America so he sits on the, on the board of many different organizations and through our relationship with him we've been able to be pulled into many discussions I think that's the value of building relationships. You don't know where it's going to end up. And what I find is, you know, very bizarre that many mid-tier, many consult even at McKinsey and BCG, I'll be honest, they try to show how prestigious they are by demeaning other people. And I think that's a horrible way to operate. I mean, at the end of the day, I have a philosophy that everyone deserves respect you don't earn respect it's one of the, i believe it's one of the worst statements in the world to say you have to earn respect you don't have to earn respect you have it by the mere fact that you are there and if you have this culture i think of treating people with respect putting the interest first you know, i mean i just i basically gave this guy a mini mba course this middle manager until he understood what was happening and then he went ahead with it until you do that you don't know where it'll end up and i think it's just no, when you engage people, uh, as a consultant, as an aspiring consultant, when you engage people anywhere, if the only way for you to feel good about what you do is to make other people feel bad about what they do, or their ambitions, or their goals, then I think you don't understand the culture of management consulting. And I can talk about other projects, actually, where we... There's a one other project whereby we educated someone, a middle manager again, in, I think, the company was ranked fourth in its sector... Okay, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's fifth in his sector worldwide. He was doing an MBA. He had heard about this concept in management. He thought it could work at his at his uh, employer. He reached out to a number of people to help him think it through. And I wasn't the lead partner on this project. I wasn't the main. I wasn't the managing director. Or any, I wasn't even the lead principal on this um, particular uh, client. But I did come in midway through. Uh, to bring in some of the analytical firepower to help them think it through. But again, it was just about educating them, spending time with them. Not It it was not about trying to sell this guy something just for the sake of a sale, no. We thought, look, at the least, this guy's ambitious. We don't know where it'll go. Let's spend some time with him, you know. Let's talk him to him. Let's educate him. Let's give him the ammunition to do what he wants to do. Nothing may come out of it. Something may come out of it. But at the end of the day, every moment you engage with someone outside of the firm is a moment you are building up the image of the firm. I think it was, I read this somewhere, it's called a moment of excellence. Every single time you engage someone is a moment of excellence. It's a chance for you to demonstrate your values. And that's the you know, philosophy. I didn't know this at that point, you know. But I think the, the issue here is that the way you build relationships in the top tier firms are very, very different. You know, my proposal in inverted commas for this project that I actually ended up handing over to the uh, uh, chairman was a basically a 10-page letter that I wrote him. 10 pages where I explained to him what we had discussed, what we thought should happen, and then I, I dropped in a timeline of what we thought we should do, what I think the deliverables would be. Just a two-line, three-line summary of who would be on the project, and I plopped in the price then. That was it. No discussions, because when you operate at that level and you've committed so much to educate the client, they do not mistrust your intentions. And, and to be honest, you know, it's not some kind of a tactic where we, we give them so much just so we can screw them over later. No. We really wanted them to succeed. Um, it was important for us to succeed. This company is very important to, the, to, to a very tiny economy in Latin America, so for us, we wanted them to succeed. We also felt the chairman meant well. I mean, the mere fact that the chairman went out on a limb, met these consultants on the first day tells us where his agenda lies. He wants to institute change. We felt that the middle manager put a lot on, his, on the line, including his career, to bring us in. We felt his senior vice president had put a lot on the line to bring us in. 
even though the senior vice president had never spoken to us. So we wanted to do the best we can. And I think it's important to understand that any opportunity is an opportunity. Any chance to build a relationship is a chance to build a lasting relationship. And I still have a relationship with this chairman. I still, I mean, I'm not big buddies, but I can call him up anytime and have a discussion with him, which I do. For those of you who know, who follow the blog, you know we're in Brazil a lot with our executive training program where we help executives understand how to think like management consultants. And we operate purely on a referral basis. There are no advertisements. We don't even acknowledge that we do the work. But this chairman has basically told the entire world about the work we've done. And we don't offer him anything. We don't even tell him about the work we do. He just we brought it up once over dinner the last time I was down in Brazil and Brazil has now become a huge market for us where we're helping executives to understand what's happening but the point of the story is that when an opportunity opens you don't know how it will develop it's your job to take it forward and not every discussion is going to be with the CEO that's just a myth that consulting firms like to generate but the level at which you engage must always be as if you are addressing the CEO or the chairman of the board, and that's the quality you put into it. As always, feel free to comment, and I'll be happy to respond. Take care.